since I was up here. Um, I've been working on this, this project for work and, and others have filled the gap, so I really do appreciate that. Um, today we're going to be continuing our series in Acts. Um, we're going to be in chapter 6 today. Ralph always, he always asks me before the service, what, what are we going to be in, what are we going to be looking at today, Pastor? And uh, so today we're in Acts 6. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that, Ralph. I appreciate your, your prayers for us as we, as we prepare each week. Amen. And um, so I, I like, as we, as we get started, I always like to remind us where we are for context. And, and it may not be as much of a reach this week. Sometimes it's a little bit more. But we've been in Acts for some time. And we've bounced around some. And then we've been going through sequentially uh, through, through these different chapters. Today we're in chapter 6. Um, so... We know that Christ has, has come, he's, he's been crucified, he's been resurrected. Uh, the Spirit came in chapter 2 at Pentecost. And, and then in chapters 3 through 6, that, that span of time was only just a couple of years probably. So right, we're, we're right in still within a couple of years of the, the death and resurrection of Christ. The church is very young. It's still very localized right in Jerusalem. The church is still growing. They're, they're figuring out what, what are the norms of being a church. Because these people a couple years before went to synagogue on the Sabbath. And now they're worshiping the Lord on possibly on Sundays. And, and the things are changing. But they still probably go to the synagogue. What does the scripture look like at this point in time? Well, we're still 12, 12 years away probably at least from the first New Testament book being written. We believe James wrote the, new, the first New Testament book around AD 45. That's, that's still far in the future for these folks. The so scriptures are still the Old Testament. Any, any teaching of Jesus and his new covenant is still oral. It's still word of mouth. And mostly by people who were there and walked with him and saw him and knew him, saw the crucifixion and, and witnessed his resurrected self. So, so these things are happening. This is kind of the context. And the church is trying to figure out what is it like to be a church? What does it mean to be a church? And um, in those days, the Jews in Jerusalem, because the church is still a Jewish entity, really, at this point, the Jews in Jerusalem, you could, you could split them several ways. You could split them politically. You could split them doctrinally. But what I want to talk about is culturally, uh, because that's what we see here in the first part of, of the sixth chapter of Acts. There are, there are Jews who are what they would call themselves Hebrews and, and Jews that are Hellenists or Grecians. They have, a, they have a Greek mindset. Possibly they have lived abroad for a while in the Roman Empire. And they've soaked up the Greek culture. They've, they've, they've obtained the Greek language. And so now, now there's a mixture of people in Jerusalem. They're still Jews, but, the, but they have some cultural differences. And, and so there's a natural, natural possibility of a conflict. And so we see that conflict crop up and, and we're going to get to that. But I just kind of wanted to lay that, that foundation from where we are. Um, a significant number of non-Jews will come later. You know, the Gentiles, they're not really there yet. And it seems that this is a, a constant problem in the church that, that we people can always find distinctions to divide ourselves. And, 
And here we are two years into the church. Jesus has only been resurrected and, and ascended for a couple of years. And, and they're finding ways to divide. Um, but, but what happens is the leadership of the church and the Spirit directs them to a way to remedy that. And we're going to look in that. And so as we, as we get started here, and I'll, and I'll pray, but I want, to, I want to kind of emphasize three points as we go this morning. There's, there is work to be done in Jesus' church. There's work to be done in Jesus' church. And God gives His church a fair amount of freedom to work out how to do that work, how to serve. And then finally, following Christ faithfully and doing that work does not mean it will be easy. Certainly does not mean it will be easy. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank You. We thank You for all that You provide for us. This place, uh, I thank You for every, every person that's here today. By Your providence, You've brought them, including me. And we're here at a divine meeting to look into Your Word together, to learn. And Father, I pray that You'll change our hearts, that You'll shape us, that You'll draw us closer to You through Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter. Um, it's, a, it's a narrative. <clears throat> and then I'm going to kind of walk through it and try to call out these points as we go. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so let's get started. Um, this first part talks about the, the disciples increasing in number. And that the Hellenists were complaining because it seemed like the, the distribution of, of, uh, of help for the widows wasn't, wasn't equal and it wasn't fair. So let's just recognize what's going on first of all. The church is helping widows. So that's a good thing. Good job, church. But they're not doing it perfectly and they're not doing it completely equally. So they're not completely acing it, but they're trying to do a good job. 
Now what, what happens out of this is, is obvious. If you've ever dealt with groups of people, people got their feelings hurt. Right? And somebody didn't get taken care of as well as somebody else. And so they figured they, there must be some bad motive. They're upset. And they, and they brought complaints forward. And this, these things happen. Um, we've seen it if you've lived any time in any body of people, whether it's a church or not. You, you know these things happen. Uh, good intentions, not, not executed perfectly, and then somebody's mad. And that's what's happening here. But, but they don't just blow it off as, oh, well, people are going to complain. You know, let them complain. No. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. And remember what's going on here as, as context again. The twelve are Jesus' inner circle. Those are the disciples that He called to walk with Him closely. The ones that we, that we remember by name, very much by name. Um, these are the ones that would have been in the upper room with him. The intimates, right? Among those, there was an even smaller core of intimates. Peter and James and John. But these are the twelve. And minus Judas, of course. And then as we, as we read in a couple chapters ago, plus Matthias, who was added to replace Judas because they wanted to have the twelve. But when they chose Matthias, if you remember, they picked only from disciples who had walked with Jesus from the beginning. And that was, a, that was a criteria they set. Let's pick from somebody who walked from him from the beginning, from the baptism of John. So if you think about that as a criteria, and that must have, it implies, we can clearly see, there were multiple people besides the twelve who had been walking and following Jesus from that, from that early time in his ministry. And so there's some of these people that are still here now. Now they're involved in the church. So there's an, inner, there's an inner three, then there's a twelve, and then there's this outer group of people who have been following in their faithful disciples. Outside that ring now, the church has been growing since Jesus left. The church has been growing. So the, the apostles, the twelve, they called the church together and they said, okay guys, well, what do we need to do? We need to focus on preaching and we need to focus on praying, but there needs to be someone who's focused on serving and making sure that this task is done right. Because they recognized they weren't, they weren't getting it done right. And so, and so they, they, uh, they brought these people together. Now, this phrase, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. There's a lot that we could talk about there. It raises a lot of questions we need to think about. What do the apostles be, mean by serving tables? Are they strictly focused on getting food to the widows? Or is it broader than that? I would suggest it is broader than that. It's, it's meeting practical needs in the body and meeting practical needs possibly even outside the body sometimes. Well, let me ask you this. Are preachers more important than those who serve tables? Is that what's going on here? They're reserving themselves for, for higher work or for, for uh, work that, that uh, they, don't, they don't really want to do? Would it be wrong for the apostles it's, it says, why would it be wrong for the apostles to give up preaching in order to serve? Why would it be wrong for the apostles to give up preaching in order to serve? They say that it would. So let's, let's kind of talk through that. So practice, serving tables, I would imply, would be a practical service. It's, it's meeting the needs of the body, kind of like what I said a minute ago. And, and James tells us that caring for widows and orphans is pure religion. Right? So that's pretty good authority. Now James's letter hasn't been written yet, right? But he's referencing the Old Testament anyway. And so we know that 
that caring for widows and orphans has always been a priority for God. And it's clearly a suitable activity for the church to be pursuing. So serving tables includes that, but it, but it implies many, many more things. I mean, people have all kinds of needs. And they're not always widows and orphans. Um, but the widows and orphans certainly need special attention. I want to I say something here that's, I, th- I think, important for us to, to think through. Um, and we talked a little bit about this this morning in our, uh, in our Sunday school lesson. But, but the service, the acts that we do, it, it's, it actually matters why we do them. And, and I would say that as we serve, we seek to serve people who need our help, that we should be serving out of love for who they are. These are people, they are not projects. They're not check marks on a list. Right? They're God's creations. They're, they are His creations that reflect His image. And they have value. They are people. They may not be believers yet, but they are His image. Right? That's why they have value. That's why we love them. And we should love them and not just treat them like projects. And I think... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not preaching in a harsh way because I'm not saying that, that we do that. But it, but it can happen. And sometimes we can get focused on tasks and, and trying to do what we're supposed to do. And we can think of people as projects. Um, if you think about other ways that, that people can serve. Um, if The church in Acts, and Cody talked a little bit about this last week. People were selling their property. Pooling their money. And then, and then using the money to support the body and support other things that were going on. Now, if you think about that, just back up from what, what's going on there. Somebody's got to do that work. Right? Somebody's, if, if I sell my property and bring money, somebody's got to collect the money. Somebody's got to count the money and make sure that it's kept safe. And somebody needs to watch over it as it gets spent and make sure that it's not wasted or stolen. Right? What, what does that activity sound like? Maybe a treasurer? It sounds a lot like a treasure, and we have one of those, right? He serves. He serves us. And, and we actually have a, an assistant treasurer who also serves. And, and that's, they're not named deacons, as we're going to come to here in a minute, but, but they are serving. They're doing practical stuff for the body to support the work of the body. And, and so what other things? We, we talk about our three pillars of, of, of what we want to focus on in Blackman here as family and discipleship and service, right? So this service thing is important to us. We say that it is. And we need to understand clearly what it is and what it isn't. And, and this came up today in Sunday school too. And uh, it's, it's interesting, even Weston brought it up to me even in the, in the little interlude there. But we are Baptists and we love the gospel. We love that, that we can't earn our salvation because we know that we can't. So, so that if, if we were expected to, we would be lost. So we love that the gospel teaches us that our salvation comes by grace through faith, right? We love that. We love Ephesians 2. And even this morning that came up in Sunday school because Sarah mentioned Ephesians 2. And that is a great comfort, that gift of salvation to us. But the very next little verses come and say what? That... That we are saved by grace and we are saved for good works in Christ. We have a purpose. Once we're saved, we have a purpose. And it's to do and it's to help and it's to serve. It's to act. Right? And, 
It was interesting this morning as we looked into Revelation and Jesus is writing his letters to the churches and he's saying, I'm, I'm looking at your works and I'm seeing some gaps. Right? Our works matter to Christ. They don't save us. We have to keep that distinction clear. Our works don't save us, but our works are important. Christ expects them. Now when we serve as members of a body, we can amplify our ability to do good. And this is not necessarily a, a scriptural principle. This is just how the world works. This is how God set things up. I can do so much as an individual, but we as a body, as an organization, can do a lot more. Because we can focus people who have talent, and we can, we can pull resources, and we can pull people, and we can make stuff happen that an individual can't do. There's power in a group. And that power can be used for good or bad. But imagine, just consider and think, if that group is knit together by the Holy Spirit Himself, if that, if that group is commissioned by God, if that group is the bride of Christ, how much more power can we have? And we do have power. Kevin preached a couple weeks ago, and, and he, he made the observation that that there's this kind of old saw that says, well, you know, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. And Kevin, Kevin reminded us that actually that's, that's backwards. If you're truly heavenly minded, if you're really focused on the things of God, you, you should be a lot of earthly good. And most of the people who have made a big, a big difference in, in culture and protecting the helpless have done it. Why? Because they were Christians. The whole fact that we have hospitals at all is because of that. The, you know, the outreach to the poor is because of that. It's, it's remarkable to see. And, and in our times, I would, I would caution, and I don't want to get political. I definitely don't want to get political. But for good intentions, our government tries to help people and tries to take away need. And that, and that is, I believe, well-intentioned. Political people could debate whether or not it's a good idea, but, it's a, but it is, I believe, well-intentioned. But what we cannot, as believers, let that happen to, let happen to us, it doesn't let us off the hook for helping. It doesn't let us off the hook for reaching into people's lives and serving. We can't say, well, I pay my taxes, I'm good. No, that's not good enough. Because as much as the government does, tries to help, and sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails, what the government is not going to do is bring the gospel to people. And sometimes the help... Is, is the way that the gospel comes. I want you to think about that. Moving on. It says, the, the apostle said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And this is a simple principle of sharing work. We see this early on. We see it in Exodus when Moses is just getting overwhelmed by people and his father-in-law comes along and says, Hey, Moses, let me help you out here. You need to appoint some judges because you can't handle this load. It's too much. And it, it's really quite simple. It, it, there's a spiritual truth to it, but it isn't purely spiritual. It's, it's simple. We've got to share the work, right? And, and a good leader learns how to do that well. And it's, it doesn't always come easily or naturally. A good leader often becomes a good leader because they're good at doing something well. And... And, and it becomes, then there reaches a point when they have to hand things off. And that's a hard thing for a lot of people. It's a really hard thing to say, 
okay, I've been doing this and I know how I want it done and I know how it's done well. You go, you go do it. I hope you don't screw it up, but go ahead, right? That's, but that's part of learning to be a leader is, is figuring out how that works. How to encourage people, how to teach people, and then how to trust them and let them go do. And that's what's happening here. The apostles are saying, appoint some men. What are the qualifications for these men? Well, they have good reputations among the people. They're known to be full of the Spirit and wise, wise people. That's it. Those are the qualifications. And it doesn't tell us. Um, it's, it's, I'm saying that it's interesting to note what they didn't do. The apostles did not go out and choose the men themselves. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the apostles are wise and full of the Spirit. Why didn't they go pick the men? It's not what they did. They trusted the other believers to find the right people. And Luke is pretty light on details about how this process worked. You know, in drafting the church constitution, we would have loved to know, what's the procedure, apostles? How did you work this out? But he didn't give that to us. So we, we are left then with, with an ambiguous freedom to figure out how it works for us. And, and, and we try to do that. Um, because we don't have that, that recipe for deacon election in the New Testament. Oh, but we can look at this as an example. And we, we at Blackman do look at this passage as an example. It may not be absolutely prescriptive as in telling us exactly what to do. But we do look at it as a, as a real example. And, and I want to, for those of you young people that have your, your sermon notes with you, i got a vocabulary word I want you to write down. Okay? It's polity. P-O-L-I-T-Y. And some of you adults might, might need to write it down too because until a few years ago, I wouldn't have known what that meant. But I looked it up and I learned. So polity, which sounds a little bit like politics, and that's not an accident that it sounds like that, because polity is about how an organization is put together. What are the rules by which it functions? How, what's the structure like? That's, that's simply what it means, polity. We here at Gladman, we, we like to say that our polity is, in summary, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally ruled. And I would argue that we see that played out in this passage. We see that the apostles who were serving as the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church, they came and they saw there was an issue and they gave direction and they said, well, let's, let's appoint some people to serve in this, in this capacity. Right? So they led, they gave direction. Then, then what happened? The congregation was asked to decide, to choose the people. The congregation chose the people. We don't know how. Was it a, was it a, a blind ballot or, a, or a, a show of hands? We don't know. Did they use Robert's rules? I don't know. I don't think that was invented yet. But somehow they chose these men to be deacons. And, and then finally that we get that third piece. The deacons serve because now they've got deacons to help serve. And so there's... As this church, this young church is growing and, and, and forming, we get this, this picture of, of a leadership group and a, and a group of people who are serving and then, and then the congregation that are entrusted to make the decisions. And entrusted because, because they're guided by the Holy Spirit. There's no detail about a time limit for the de- deacons to serve. We don't know. And there's no indication that the deacons um, were only allowed to serve practically. In fact, 
quite the opposite. We're going to see Stephen didn't quit doing the other ministry that he did just because he became named as a deacon. We're going to see that in the next chapter loud and clear. Um, and actually, uh, Brother Minchie from the Concord Association is going to be here next week and preach on, on uh, Stephen's sermon. So that will be something to look forward to. So what is our principle here? Well, we, we trust God to guide His church through His Spirit. When we, when we vote on things as a church, it may look the same. It, it, in, the outward, in the outward appearance, it looks kind of like what we do when we vote in a government or any kind of other society. But our understanding of what's happening is actually quite different. Because we, we expect that God is going to guide our vote. That He's going to use His Spirit to move us. And we pray for that. We pray for that influence, that as we, as we vote, that we're voting God's way. That's what we, that's what we pray for. And we pray that, that the majority of the votes will, will count up that way and that we will follow God's way. Does that happen every time? It would be hard for me to argue that in every church, the majority vote is always what God wants or what God would have according to His, to his principles that He set out. I've heard horror stories of, uh, of elections in churches and, and decisions made by, by majority that are uh, clearly not uh, kind or loving. But, but that's what we're looking for. We want, we want to use our vote in the church. We want, to, we want to always have that context that we're voting, we're voting for God's will. And that's easy to forget. So I want to recall attention to that. Now this next part, the apostles say they're doing this, and then they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's what the apostles are saying. We have found help, so now we can be freed up to focus on these, these priorities that have been given to us. To pray and to preach. Not that they are above serving widows, clearly not. They only had so much time and energy. So it needs to be focused on the tasks they're given. I was thinking about this. and it, it seems like every sermon that I prepare ends up pointing the finger right at me. When I'm trying to preach at you. And so, so here we have, in a, in a sermon potentially about, about church polity and, and a sort of an introduction to this glorious sermon that Stephen's going to preach, I've got this, oh Ken... How are you doing about devoting yourself to prayer? Mm. That's tough because I don't always do great at it. So I would ask you to pray for me that I would do great at it. Okay? Because that's it's a really important thing. And pray for your other elders too. Um, so we have this. Why... Uh, uh, so I can see there's an application here for me, but what about you? Are there applications here for you? Well, actually, yes. I got several. So are you considering your vote in church as a way to participate in God's will or to get your way? That's a really important question to ask. Every time we have a vote or every time, not everything is about a vote either. We Clearly, there are times when you can in, informally influence. And are you using your influence for God's way or for yours? Are you trusting that God can use these flawed leaders and flawed church members for His glory so that He can guide this little building full of redeemed sinners to do good things in His name? Do you trust Him 
Do you trust what God's doing? In what area do you need to trust God with your church? Are there, are there flaws that you see? Probably, if you don't see some flaws, you're not paying attention. But, but do you trust what God's doing overall? I hope so. I hope so. How can you pray for your, for your brothers and sisters who are, who are serving and trying to serve? So moving on. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They chose these six other men. They set them before the, the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And, and I just wanted to make the point quickly that, that Luke is giving us the names of these first deacons. They're recorded forever as men who are able and willing to serve the church. And I, I just, I, we're not told exactly, but no doubt they faced controversy and probably very quickly after they were named, right? No doubt they made mistakes in their service because they're just men. They might have sometimes failed to get all the widows done on time. And maybe they missed a widow sometime. Maybe somebody's feelings still got hurt even after this procedure happened. Someone probably questioned how they put together their schedule. Somebody probably quietly lobbied on the backside to, to adjust how they did, did things. That's kind of how we are, isn't it? But you know what? These are just the realities of being in church with people who are, who are flawed sinners. The church contains wheat and weeds, but even the wheat is not perfect yet, right? Even your fellow believers who you're going to spend eternity with don't always do the right thing in the here and now. And, and that's what these deacons no doubt had to contend with, just like your deacons today. And, and so please do pray for them and, and appreciate what they do. Appreciate their patience and their dedication. Uh, because uh, you really do have good deacons here. The Word of God continued to increase, carrying on in the passage. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. That's what the Word tells us. God's will marches on. This does not imply that it was because of what the apostles did, even though it follows right after this, this naming of the deacons. And it doesn't imply, imply that their obedience and their, and their faithfulness was irrelevant either. It just kind of naturally flows that here's what the church did and here's what God did. The, the two go together. And God's will is being done in the church, in the city, and even in the synagogue. And I want you to think about, think about the importance of that for a moment. How hard it is for a religious leader to change their mind on something, publicly change their mind, these priests had to publicly change their mind and publicly say, yes, apostles, you're right. Jesus is the Messiah. We were wrong. We got it wrong, but we see it now. That takes a great deal of, of courage and a great deal of humility. When you see a leader admit a mistake, especially such a significant one as this, it's powerful. So... So we have God's will moving on in the church. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Stephen himself because, because we're, going to get, we're going to get a full dose of that next week. But I do want to make a couple of points about Stephen. It says that he was full of grace and power. It says that he was doing great wonders and signs among the teachers. And he got a lot of resistance for it. 
he was selected as a deacon to make sure that the widows were cared for so that the apostles could focus on praying and preaching. And yet, what's the first sermon we see after this decision? In one of the most important sermons, frankly, in the New Testament, in all of Scripture, is Stephen's sermon. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't even called to be a bishop or an overseer. He was a deacon. And yet, here he is doing wonders and signs and preaching. So, so these titles... These titles, we have to take them seriously, but not too seriously. Every believer is called to, to follow what God has for him. Every believer. And Stephen is full of the Spirit, and he's following God's will. We can do that too. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and he showed them what leadership looks like in God's kingdom. It looks like service. That's what it looks like. And that's what Stephen did. Stephen took this role to go take food to the widows, right? Clearly a powerful orator, a man who could perform miracles, and yet he said, yeah, I'll take food to the widows. I'll do that. Pretty powerful. And the last point I want to make about that is that when the church is faithful, Satan will attack. We should expect it. We should expect it. This is not a prosperity gospel. I'm not telling you that if you do the right things, God will, God will take care of you and make your way easy. Because it's just not true. Paul tells us that's not true. Jesus told us, if you love me, the world will hate you. If you follow me, the world will hate me. Why? The world hated Jesus. So the more we are like him, the more the world's going to hate us. That's what Jesus said. How can we think... That by following Jesus, everyone's going to love us. When Jesus told us that's not, that's not the case. We won't. That's not what's going to happen. And here's, Je- here's Stephen loving Jesus. And what's the world think of him? He's a problem child. We've got to deal with this guy. And we should not be surprised. And what do you do when you encounter attacks? Sometimes they hit head on. Like these attacks. Come in at Stephen straight from the priesthood. So they're clear to see, right? But sometimes they come from behind. Sometimes they come from the side. Sometimes they come from within us, I think. You know? And so how do we, how do we respond? Do we recognize these things for what they are? If it's sin in our life that's causing a problem, recognize it. It's the sin that, that Jesus paid for. God, take it away. Take this thing away. Strike it down. If it comes from the side, if it comes from someone else in church, recognize it's it's Satan's will to divide, but it's God's will to unite. What, if, what is your role if you are offended? To forgive. To forgive again. And the disciples asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? Come on, Jesus, how many times? And Jesus said 70 times 7, which does not equal 490. It's infinity. That's what he's saying. There's no limit. How many, how many abuses do you have to take before you stop forgiving? How many abuses did Jesus take before he stopped forgiving? So what do we do when the attacks come? We pray. We pray for God's defense. We seek, we seek other believers. We seek comfort. We seek reconciliation. We pray for our own faithfulness. We pray for strength. We pray for the faithfulness and strength of our brothers and sisters. 
We don't let small disputes or disagreements divide Christ's body because that's what the enemy wants. We don't want to play into his hands. So as the uh, musicians come up, and we're, we're going to do communion here in a minute, but I want to close with just a few points. And I know I've, I've ran a little bit long. Um, so today's message has been about the early church. And the deacons were called to serve. If you're in the church, you may be serving officially as a deacon. You may be serving as a believer. But if you're not serving, will you, will you seek a way to serve? Because there are places where you can plug in. Places that, that can use your help. And if you think, oh, I'm not spiritual enough, no, you can help. There are things that need to be done in this church. If you're not a believer, I hope that you'll understand that without God, our lives don't mean anything. They have no permanent significance. But in God's plan, our lives take on an eternal significance. We're eternal people, and we interact with other eternal people. So these acts of service are acts of love from one eternal, immortal being to another one. That's pretty powerful. That's important. And I hope that you see, if you're not part of a church, I hope that you see that for all its flaws, what the church is, is God's plan to put His people together. Because He loves His people. He puts us together, and He's working to perfect us. And while doing so, He gives us a mission. He gives us a purpose. We're flawed and we're redeemed, but we have purpose. Our purpose is to bring God's message. Our purpose is to bring healing and comfort through service. And our message is simple. That Jesus died to pay the debt for our sin. Our crimes, our sins, our crimes against God. That's what He had to pay for. But He did it so that we can be reconciled to God forever. And our mission as a church, as Jesus' church, we belong to Him, is to spread this message to everyone. That's what we do.